Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue, where your hosts and real autopsy techs, Jess and Alice. This week, we went back to one of our personal favorite shows, Coroner, and we watched Season 1, Episode 5, titled All's Well. We'll be discussing scavenger animals, IDs through tattoos, and how your body can turn into soap in the water. So, let's get into it. So, we open on Jenny our pathologist in the show, in the morgue, and she brings in just a severed foot, just casually carrying a severed foot. She walks over to an autopsy table where the body is laid out, being examined by the other doctors and techs, and one person points out to Jenny that they don't need the foot to determine if the woman died from multiple organ failure. Jenny says that's true, but when she returns the woman's body to her family, she wants it to be whole. Very noble of her. And I don't, like... So you also see her in the opening scene, like she's like extracting the severed foot from like a piece of car. Like we find out later this woman was in a car accident. But like you have to release the body like as like a whole body. Like we couldn't just like leave the foot behind in the morgue. Like you ha- like the doctors were like, oh, you didn't have to get that foot. And it's like, no, no, she did. <laughs> no, it's her job too. No, you literally have to. You can't just keep the foot because it was hard to find. Like you have to get it. <laughs> You can't just keep it because it's stuck somewhere. <laughs> and she was nice. She sewed it back on the body. Right. For the funeral home. Yeah, that was that was going the extra mile for her. But, like, you you most definitely should return the full body to the funeral yeah. home. <laughs> there are some, there's some next of kin that come back. Because, um, like, we'll send, like, tissue out for additional testing. Sometimes we'll save the brain specifically for, like, uh, a neuropathologist to look at it. And there was a case recently where a family was, like, I want the brain back and we're like well the lab has it so like unfortunately we can't give that back but like there are family members who will come back and be like where's the rest of my loved one right but we're not just gonna like keep a hand or a foot not give them back (laughs) a whole extremity a whole piece of their themselves yeah so a detective comes into the office carrying a bucket of bones that a citizen found in their yard while building a deck Jenny is quick to see that they are pig bones, and it, they're, like, very obviously pig bones. She pulls out the skull, and it's very clearly not, like, a human skull. It's some kind of animal skull. Um, she says somebody probably got a cute piglet that turned into a gigantic sow that they got rid of in their backyard, which is sad. They killed this pig in their backyard. So we've had situations where people have found bones in their yard and, like, weren't able to identify if they were animal or human bones. And as a result, they call the police who in turn call us and they bring the bones in for us and the pathologist to examine, to determine if they're human. And every single time they have been animal. We've never had human bones. Yes. Without fail. There was one time this man was fishing and he caught something weird and he swore that they were, that he said they looked like phalanges, like the fingers in your bones So this fish had swallowed something, and this is what the man was looking at. So all the way, he he was at the beach, and we obviously do not live at the beach. So this man brought the fish from the beach to back to where he lived, which is near our office, and brought this fish, police had brought this fish into our office, and we did an autopsy on this fish (laughs) because he, this fish had swallowed bones of some sort, and it was we determined that they were definitely not human and it was animal and it was probably just another fish that this fish had eaten. Yeah, that was a, a weird day. That was a weird day at work. I'm like, oh, how was your day? Oh, we did an autopsy on a fish. What? 
Is that normal? No. There's so many. <laughs> it's not normal. It's not normal. There are so many times we'll get um, like ham bones, like from a spiral cut ham. Oh, yes. Seen that. Also, we know that an animal autopsy is called a necropsy. So I'm waiting for like people to comment like, oh, hey, did you actually know? Like, yes, I did. I did learn that. <laughs> I just like to say that we autopsied a fish. <laughs> uh, it's just more fun. <laughs> yeah. But animal bones are very clearly different than human bones. They are much bigger. Yeah. I, they're just overall bigger than an average human bone would be. Yeah. Or like there, is, there are like if you don't know, like sometimes I can't tell. Obviously, we need the doctor to tell. But uh, there was one interesting one we had where it was actually a bird bone, but it was like a wing. It was a wing bone, but right. it looked like a scapula. Like it looked like a shoulder blade, but like a smaller shoulder blade. And I was like, I don't think it's human, but I mean, the doctor is going to have to check in the doctor was the one who informed me like oh yeah no this is like a wing bone from some kind of large bird but it looks like a small human scapula i was like that's crazy yeah so i mean if you do find bones in your yard please do call the police if you don't know what they're from <laughs> like please inform someone there is the the off chance they could be human right you're like you should you, do, you should get an expert just to be sure but mm-hmm. at least every instance i've seen we've always had animal bones Back to the body that the show was examining in the beginning, the text says that the hepatic artery, which is the artery in your liver, and the aorta are shredded and that the cava is also not intact. So it looks like this young woman died on impact in a car accident. So in car accident cases that we see in our morgue, we normally see injuries to the head, neck, thorax, and abdomen. There's normally lots of hemorrhage around the head and the brain if they hit their head on impact. And there's usually some broken neck scene. We've talked about internal decapitations before. Listen to our past episodes if you want to learn a little bit about that. And if you're wearing a seatbelt, there's a seatbelt abrasion that goes across the body. And if you don't wear a seatbelt, usually you're ejected. I keep saying you. I don't mean you, listener. (laughs) I got to stop doing that. I do that all the time when I'm telling stories. The theoretical person in this situation. I'm so sorry, everybody listening. If they don't wear a seatbelt, they would easily get ejected. Then we'd see road rash or other injuries on the skin and overall body. So Jenny gets a call about a Gerald Henry Jones, whose lawyer is trying to get his conviction overturned. This is like a whole subplot that we don't get like super deep into. But the lawyer claims that a Dr. Peterson gave a flawed pathology report that put her client in prison. And Jenny says if that's true, he will get a retrial. The lawyer presents a subpoena for all relevant records and physical evidence pertaining to her client's case. And Jenny's trying to, like, level with the lawyer and is like, listen, we want the same thing. We both want the truth. And the lawyer just flat out says she doesn't care about the truth. She just wants to get her client out of prison, which I thought personally was a weird thing to say. I feel like that's such a, like, a criminal defense attorney's reaction. They only care about getting their client off. Right. Or, like, maybe that's just how shows portray them. True. Like, they just care about it. I think a defense attorney should start a podcast like we have one <laughs> talk about all do red flag green flags for defense attorneys. All every law and order episode out there. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Jenny invites her office manager to her house for Sunday night for Thanksgiving dinner. And just for reference, they're in Canada, which is why Thanksgiving is on a Sunday. If anybody else was confused like me who is in America and celebrates Thanksgiving on a Thursday. I didn't even think about that. I just noticed she said, she's like, come over Sunday for Thanksgiving. And they were like, okay. And then it clicked that they're in Canada. And that's why they were celebrating. They have a different Thanksgiving. 
However, back at her house, she's having some plumbing troubles. She tells her friend slash possible love interest, that's a whole other thing we don't get entirely into, and handyman Liam about how she turned on her sink and it made a strange noise, then there was a gush of water, and then a rumble, and then the water stopped. Liam gets to work on the sink while Jenny keeps preparing dinner and her guests start to arrive. We cut to a scene in a well where it looks like there's just a casual body floating. Did you also think of Elisa Lamb, the Cecil Hotel case? Yes, immediately. We already talked about her, but I was like, oh, could that be a true crime we could discuss? And I was like, oh, we already talked about Elisa Lamb in a past episode where there was another body in a, in a water tank. We see Liam down in the basement messing with some pipes to try and fix the plumbing situation. He says that the water isn't reaching the house, which means there's a leak in the communication pipe. He thinks the pipe is broken, but with it being a holiday, there isn't much that they can do about it. Liam says that her house is an old country house and it should have a well, so to get them through the day, he can power it up. More guests continue to arrive for Thanksgiving, and as Liam is trying to get the sink running from well water, one of Jenny's guests smells a stench, and so does Jenny. So they go to the kitchen sink to find Liam filling a glass with water that is brown and cloudy. And Jenny says by the looks and smell of it, it seems to be decomposing organic matter. Delicious. Could you, like, smell, like, like I, I felt like I could smell it. Like, when you saw the water, I was like, oh, I can imagine. It reminded me of the most traumatic scene I've ever worked, which was the case of the bathtub guy that I have oh, talked no. about on the show before. I just got, like, all of the flashbacks of that. It was, <laughs> that was a rough day. It was so depressing. And that was our old building where we had a smaller autopsy suite and it was just like the smell just filled up the room so quickly <laughs> it was, you couldn't. and our offices were so close to the cooler that you do we just couldn't escape the smell oh my god it was so bad there we got complaints throughout the whole building and we're like we're so we don't want to be doing this either we're so sorry <laughs> like, <we don't- laughs> right like i don't have control over this we hate this too please don't be mad at us <laughs> we don't find this fun <laughs> Oh my god. I didn't even like connect that with this and now I can now I can smell it again. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just, no, it's fine. I should have connected that. I didn't even think of that case. <laughs> like blocked out. I have like a mental block against that day. Like, oh my god. I love my job. I love my job. <laughs> so back in the show, Liam and Jenny go to uncover the well and the stench is stronger as they uncover it. Liam starts coughing, and Jenny offers him camphor for his nose. So camphor is used for cough, pain, and itching, and it can also be used for insect bites and other conditions. And I get asked this a lot if we use this in the morgue for really bad cases, but we don't. We just we just have masks on. We don't use anything to block out stenches. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people um say that they put like essential oils in the mat in their mask so so they can only smell Mm -hmm. that or like like vicks vapor rub is that also camphor i think that's a generic name if i'm remembering hold on now i gotta look at it so i looked up camphor and i was like i've never even heard of this it's it has ingredients it has camphor eucalyptus and menthol is what fix vapor rub is ah yeah i mean we don't normally we don't ever do that we just kind of deal with the smell I also heard it's not great to do that because while it might cover the smell initially, what 
Vicks Vapor Rub is supposed to do is it's supposed to open your airways and make it easier to breathe. So while it has a very strong smell initially, it's going to open your airways and that smell is going to hit you even harder. <laughs> like that's what I've heard. I've never tried Ooh. it. I'm not willing Glad to we try don't do it, that. <laughs> but when I first started, or I think when I was a student before I was even working in a coroner's office, I asked someone who came to talk to our class one day if they'd ever used Vicks VaporRub, and they said, don't do that. <laughs> like, it's <laughs> built to open up your air passages, and it will make the smell worse. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> Jenny is guessing that an animal fell down the well, even though the cap was on, and died in there, and she shines a light down to get a better look. She sees that it is not, in fact, an animal, but a dead person. Jenny wants to go down to get a better look, and Jenny records herself on her phone to dictate what she's finding as she goes into the well. She's like, hi, I'm Jenny, I'm a pathologist and a coroner, and I'm going into the well. <laughs> I found a body. She doesn't say it like that. She says it much more professionally. <laughs> but if I were doing it, that's what I'd be doing. If I found a body on my property, it would just be me video chatting Jess like, Jess! Are my dream came true! I found a body! <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that, guys. I would call the police. <laughs> I'd call the local authorities. But I would definitely be texting Jess like, you will not believe what just happened at my Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> and Jess would immediately be like, did you find a body? And he'd be like, damn it, you knew it. I can't even surprise you. <laughs> she climbs down to see a badly decomposing corpse in the water. The face, ears, and neck have all sustained soft tissue injury, probably post-mortem vermin bites. So this brings us to scavenger animals and how they significantly alter the condition and decomposition rate of a human body, as well as they often disarticulate the body to easily transport bones away from the original death site. So scavengers, like... Rats is what Jenny says, for example, in the show. They'll remove the soft tissue of the body, specifically the face in most cases, and they increase the decomp rate by doing so. So usual scavengers are vultures, condors, rats, dogs, and others. So back in the show, Jenny also sees crush injuries to the cranium. So crush injuries are defined as compression of the extremities or other parts of the body that can cause muscle breakdown. She also notices that the body is saponified. When bodies decompose in moist or wet conditions, the fat in the body actually turns to a wax. And Jenny says that this will make it easier for her to figure out how he died. So first responders come to the scene to get the body out of the well, and a detective comes to investigate as well. Haha, <laughs> in a well, as well. Jenny takes a... I, it also... <laughs> I was really... <laughs> Did you notice the title of the episode? I was just going to say what I realized that the title is called All's Well <laughs> because it's in a well. I was like, oh, that's It took me right. too long to connect that. <laughs> I know. I think I was like typing up the script and I was like, oh, All's Well. Okay, I get it. <laughs> I get it now. <laughs> Jenny takes a closer look at the body and she says that the decedent is a male likely in his 50s, and that there is blunt force cranial trauma that indicates that his skull was smashed. The injuries could be caused by a bat or a pipe. The detectives ask if he needs to call homicide, but Jenny wants to get a positive ID first. She doesn't find a wallet or any form of ID in the decedent's pockets, but then Liam notices a green spot on the decedent's collarbone. Jenny takes a closer look and sees that it's a tattoo of a shamrock, which can help identify the decedent. Green flag for this because this is a very good way to identify someone who is no longer facially recognizable. And it's something that we've done a lot. 
And actually one time I was working, I was trying to get a, a picture of a tattoo on a decomposing person. And I was at like a weird angle trying to get like the lighting right so that like you could actually see what the tattoo was because this person was later stage decomp so it was darker like their skin looked darker and it was hard to see and I did it and I got the picture and then I'm working the rest of the day and I think you had already left and I'm like man I really smell I'm like I know I'm gonna smell a little bit from decomp but like man like I really smell bad and eventually i think it was like an hour later i looked down and there was like a piece of decomp skin just stuck to my pants because of the way i was like leaning over like it was like or no it was like on the bottom of my shirt i like the way i like leaned over the table like it must have just stuck on me and i was like no (laughs) and then just like decomp on me all this time and i'm like and i was like wow i know i usually smell bad after working a decomp but this is this is a new level oh that's so awful that was bad that was bad. As Jenny stands up, a snake comes out of the decedent's mouth, like a live snake, just perfectly fine. That's so funny. We were just talking about weird things found at autopsy in our one of our last episodes, and I was like, oh my god, a snake. Yeah, someone actually had a snake, and like the snake made it all the way to the morgue, and it like bit an autopsy tech, and I'm like, oh god. <laughs> <laughs> so she yells at Liam to grab it because it's evidence. And he does, and as she looks up, Jenny sees that all the guests who are all inside her house have come outside and see what's going on, and she's just hanging out with a dead body at the scene, and her her man friend slash handyman is handling a snake, and it's just not what you'd anticipate to see at Thanksgiving. Have you ever thought about, like, I mean, I know I just talked about it, what would you do if you were at, like, a family event and a dead body was found? Like, I feel like I'd go into work mode and I'd be like, all right, guys, this is my time to shine. Oh, I would. Yeah, I would for sure go to work mode. I feel like everybody would turn to me and be like, what do we do? Yeah, not going to lie. I've thought about that before. Like, I'm like, man. Well, just okay. So my parents have a house that's on a body of water. And there have been certain instances where people have gone missing in the body of water because they went rafting or something and weren't prepared and unfortunately drowned and like before the body is found my parents are like oh my god do you think they're gonna find the body like near our house and I'm like guys I'll know what to do (laughs) if it happens and they're like oh my god what are you gonna do and I'm like we call the police I'm not gonna touch it (laughs) I'm not gonna like interfere with the investigation I'm like you just call the police like right (laughs) I wouldn't be climbing into the well like she was. There's nothing I can do at this moment. <laughs> I'd be tempted because I'd be curious, but I wouldn't want to tamper with any evidence, especially because it wouldn't be my jurisdiction. So I'd be like, all right, let's call professionals. So Jenny apologizes to all her guests that they had to see that. And she says that it's her job to figure out who he is and what happened to him. So Jenny goes back outside and takes photos of the body and the tattoo using a ruler for scale, which will give a green flag. You know, we love our photos and we love using a ruler for scale. The detective gets an ID on the body based off of this tattoo. He gets the ID very quickly. Like, as as she's snapping the picture of the tattoo, the detective is like, oh, we got an ID based off, off the tattoo. And I'm like, really? There's only one guy that has a shamrock tattoo on his chest? I know. He, this is the only missing person with this tattoo. But there are certain specifics that we find out about the tattoo later that are important. So the decedent's name is James Grigson. And his daughter reported him missing after he went on a hike on the Bruce Trail and didn't return home. Jenny says that she knows he wasn't shoved into her well. 
there is a line of sediment that suggests that he was laying at the bottom of the lake for a considerable amount of time. The snake that came out of his mouth was a northern water snake. Liam says that they are all over the place in Dundas, nearby where Two's Falls is. This is around where he went missing while on a hike. Jenny's theory is that this man was hiking, he fell into the falls, and then he sank to the bottom of the lake, and an aquifer washed his body into her well. The detective isn't buying that this was just a misadventure, however. James Grigson had a million-dollar accident death insurance policy, which was put in place a few weeks before he died. His daughter is the sole beneficiary. She was never able to collect because they never found the body until now. Jenny says she won't have any definite answers until the autopsy is complete. And I was just wondering, would it be a conflict of interest for her to be the doctor to perform this autopsy since the body was found on her property? That's a good question. I know it's, they kept making references that she lives in a very rural rural area. So maybe they don't have a lot of coroners slash doctors. So maybe that would be okay. But what were you going to say? I was going to say part of me thinks it might be just because she was the one to find it on her property, but then also part of me thinks that it's not because she doesn't know this man personally, mm-hmm. and it just so happened to be found on her property. Right. As long as they can prove that it was found on her property and she didn't hide the body there. Yeah. So, like, the line of sediment, like, I think clears her from being ruled as a suspect for his death. But she's the one who found the line of sediment. Like, how can you trust what she says? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I mean, we trust her. We we love Jenny. We trust her. <laughs> She's a girl's girl. We trust her. <laughs> we love this show. <laughs> we love Jenny. <laughs> so before dinner, which like is still on, like she's still doing Thanksgiving while also doing like a homicide slash death investigation outside. <laughs> she does it all. She's, she's everything. Liam is just Ken. You know, he grabbed the snake though. True. The detective that was also there was like, I'm not doing that. That's not my job. The detective ran. And so Liam stepped up. Liam stepped up and grabbed that snake. Before dinner, Jenny calls Lisa Grigson to notify her of her father's passing. Again, she's making this very sensitive phone call while her family is in the other room, like enjoying Thanksgiving. Poor Jenny. I feel like she shouldn't be the one to call. That should be police notifying next of kin yeah that's usually how it goes but she's the main character she's She's everything everything. she says that lisa will have to come in and identify her father but that they're pretty sure it's him she says she will need a couple of days to determine the cause of death jenny apologizes for having to tell her this news on thanksgiving but lisa says she's grateful for the answers because the last two years have been horrible not knowing what happened to him Lisa says something about a family curse, finally catching up with her dad. But before Jenny can ask Lisa what she meant by that, Jenny's mother-in-law comes in very upset about the events of the day. Jenny's husband had passed away, but she still invited his mother over so that she could see their grandchild. So Muna, who is Jenny's mother-in-law, says that she doesn't understand why Jenny left her ER doctor job and that she thinks Jenny has an unhealthy fascination with death. And this is something I've heard from people when I tell them what I do for work and that I enjoy what I do for work. I've gotten called like, I've gotten called before that like, oh, wow, you're sick. Or like, that's disgusting. How can you love that kind of thing? And I'm like, it's, I, I like my job. I'm, I don't know. 
like don't make me feel bad about it <laughs> yeah i've gotten like oh that's you're like you're so morbid for wanting to do that mm-hmm. no i just i love anatomy and i love forensics and this is like my calling i want to do yeah like i i do enjoy doing autopsies but like it's not an unhealthy fascination with death it's the finding answers for people who can't speak for themselves fascination right and i think that's what a lot of people don't understand they think i'm just like i mean i am i was just gonna say they think i'm just emo she's still in her emo era (laughs) i'm still in my i'm still i'm just a 30 year old teenage girl guys (laughs) no but like they think i just like spooky shit and like i'm like no i do it for a reason like i do love spooky shit too but i like I'm very passionate about this job and doing the right thing. It's not just an unhealthy fascination with death or that I'm sick and twisted in some way. Yeah. It takes a certain kind of person to do this job. It does. You know, I'd like to see all those people come and do this. Yeah. And see how they handle it. Yeah. Sorry, I'm getting really defensive to our listeners who are probably (laughs) very supportive of us. And I'm like, yeah, guys. (laughs) You come do this shit. (laughs) No, you guys could. You guys could. If you're passionate about this and you want to do it, you can. But everybody who's a hater, no, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) We don't deal with the haters here. 2024 is the year of no haters. They're not... (laughs) no haters on this podcast (laughs) so yeah it's not a job a lot of people can understand but it's obviously a very important job and it takes a certain kind of person to do it and jess and i are that kind of person so after a very tense dinner like i just love that she hasn't canceled this dinner she's like i made this food we don't have water but we're gonna sit here and eat while there is crime scene going on in my backyard it's like we're having fun everybody's (laughs) having fun (laughs) you know oh my god i'm just obsessed with bob's burgers but this is i always like bob's burgers like whenever there's a thanksgiving episode something goes like horribly wrong for bob my favorite episodes (laughs) (laughs) i just feel like this is her thanksgiving episode of bob's burgers where just like everything keeps going wrong (laughs) (laughs) So Jenny looks over the photos of the body again and says that something isn't sitting right with her. She is still curious about what Lisa meant about the family curse. She takes a closer look at the shamrock tattoo on James's chest and sees a very small blue cross on the inside of it. She doesn't think that this tattoo is a, quote, Irish thing anymore. She thinks it's a, quote, cancer thing. She explains that during radiation therapy, oncologists will mark you with a little cross so that they know where to put the laser. Some people, like James, get it permanently tattooed. So James must have known that he was dying, and that's why he put the accidental death policy on his insurance. Jenny thinks he killed himself to make it look like an accident so that his daughter could get an accidental insurance policy money. Jenny gets a call from the morgue about the pig skeleton, and no matter how many times the techs try to put it together, they keep ending up with an extra rib. And pig ribs look a lot like human ribs, So they think the extra rib is human. Dun, dun, dun. End of episode. They love to leave us with cliffhangers on this one. I know. I know. I'm going to have to watch the entire first season of this. I love this show and I would watch it. And I wish that I didn't have to pay for each episode on Amazon. I know. But I will. I will commit. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do it for the pod. Yeah. There was a lot going on in this episode with, like, her personal life and stuff. Mm-hmm. So we, we left- Yeah, we left a lot of that out. But if you want to know about will she, won't they, with the handyman, you should watch <laughs> this one. 
Because there was some crazy shit with that, too. Another woman came to her house and, like... Destroyed his car. Destroyed this guy's car because she was also in love with the handyman. Guys. There is so much drama. 10 out of 10. Recommend watching this. <laughs> it's poor. Jenny was just trying to have a quiet, intimate Thanksgiving after her husband died. <laughs> and so much shit happened. <laughs> this poor woman cannot catch a break. Obviously, one of the most intriguing parts of this episode was the discovery of a body that was saponified, and this, we immediately thought of the soap lady, which is, she's displayed at the Mutter Museum in Philly, and for anyone who isn't familiar with this case, the soap lady is housed at the Mutter Museum in a wooden slash glass case. Her body is blackened from years of Philadelphia pollution, and remnants of her hair can still be seen around her head. As her nickname, Soap Lady, implies, she is a saponified body. So, saponification occurs after death when the body undergoes chemical changes that change the body's fat into a substance called adipocere, which is the funnest word. It is such a fun word to say. (laughs) I love biology words, like adipocere, (laughs) apoptosis, like, they're the best words. Oh, apoptosis is such such a fun one. (laughs) such a fun one. The cell is just bursting. (laughs) Anyway, I digress. (laughs) So this is a byproduct of decomposition. Adipocere is an organic material with a consistency of soft cheese or wax, which is why it's sometimes referred to as grave wax or corpse wax. And adipocere formed from the body is in an anaerobic or oxygen-deprived and basic pH environment. It was once thought that water was needed for saponification to occur, but later research would prove that the moisture of the body was enough to initiate saponification. Specific bacteria are are also needed, and this bacteria is found in the intestinal tract of humans. So during adipocere formation, water from soft tissue is extracted, eventually making the body inhospitable to further bacterial decomposition. Adipocere isn't able to be eaten away by insects that usually consume decomposing tissue. So the soap lady was delivered to the Mutter Museum in 1847. Dr. Leedy, a 19th century physician, paleontologist, naturalist, and professor who was a fellow at the College of Physicians in Philadelphia, donated one of two saponified bodies to the Mutter. The Mutter received the female body and the Worcester Institution received the male body. The original labels for both bodies indicated that their surname was Ellen Bogan and that they had both died of yellow fever in 1792. The mutter label indicated that the female was buried near 4th and Race Streets. This information was accepted by the museum for over 65 years until Joseph McFarland decided to investigate further. McFarland tracked down information about the Ellen Bogan's life and death in Philadelphia while the soap lady only had the surname linked to her, the soap ban was labeled as the body of Willem von Ellenbogen. The word von, when added to a name in German, indicates someone of noble descent. So McFarland looked for any mention of either name in death records, church listings, ship logs, or any other record he could find. But there were no Ellenbogens, von, or otherwise in the death records of Philadelphia in 1792. In fact, he found no records of yellow fever deaths from that year at all. He checked yellow fever deaths from uh, 1793 and found no mention of Ellen Bogan's either. He couldn't find anyone in Philadelphia named Ellen Bogan until after 1856. 
McFarland decided to also investigate the alleged location of the cemetery where the soap lady's body was found. He found that there were three German churches in that area, all with cemeteries elsewhere. McFarland decided to search the archives of the library at the College of Physicians, and he found evidence that Dr. Leedy was not telling the truth when he donated this body. He found a handwritten receipt dated November 18, 1875, indicating that Leedy paid two installments of $7.50, which in today's time is about $209, to obtain two bodies from the grave sites. Leedy wrote on the receipt that he used connivance to get the bodies. Can you imagine writing that on a receipt? I just was a conniving individual obtaining these bodies. I was a conniving little guy. A little, <laughs> a little conniving dude for, for this purchase. Like He's like, I have a little secret. I'm just going to write it down on the receipt. I have a little secret. I'm going to write it down on the receipt. I was lying. <laughs> so Dr. Galiti may have instigated this whole affair, but the college reimbursed him for the expenses. But it wasn't until Leedy passed away that Dr. William Hunt published an account of how he was actually able to obtain the two saponified bodies. Dr. Hunt was the acting curator of the museum when the soap lady was obtained. In an article published on, on January 16, 1896, which is really funny because we're recording this on January 17th. Yep. So we were doing this research on January 16th and we were both freaking out. It was published in the Philadelphia Public Ledger. Hunt stated that the only instance he ever knew of Dr. Leedy's departure from strict truth was when he heard that they were moving bodies from a very old burying ground to make improvements, and that he had heard two of the bodies had turned to adipocere. He said that the bodies had been buried for nearly a hundred years and that nobody claimed them. Dr. Leedy also said that the bodies were rare and would be instructive additions to the museum's collection. With Hunt's approval, Leedy went down to secure the bodies, and Dr. Leedy spoke to the superintendent there, who was very uncomfortable violating these graves. However, Leedy said he, quote, touched him significantly on the elbow. What is a significant elbow touch? <laughs> I'm sorry, this is getting a little weird. <laughs> and told him that he could give the bodies to relatives. So Dr. Leedy got the hint and hired a furniture wagon, and an armed driver with an order reading, quote, please deliver to bearer the bodies of my grandfather and grandmother. So this guy, the superintendent, was so uncomfortable violating graves, but then was like, hey, if you pretend that they're your grandparents, I'll feel better about this. I'll look the other way. The 1800s, man. The 1800s were insane. Crazy time. It was the wild, wild west. <laughs> Nobody... <laughs> With the wild, wild west of medicine. The wild, wild west. It was Victoria era medicine and medical research. Nobody gave a single F. <laughs> Nobody cared. For real. So, obviously, these were not Lady's grandparents, if you got the hint there. Yeah. The um, significant elbow <laughs> touch gave it away. <laughs> they did not die in 1972, and their name was not Ellen Bogan. So, the mother had the remains of an unidentified woman. So we fast forward to 1987, a team headed by Gerard Conlog, who was then uh, at Thomas Jefferson University, conducted a radiographic examination of the soap lady. They brought a portable x-ray unit to the museum. The x-rays revealed some interesting discoveries. The body had appeared elderly and toothless. 
but the x-ray showed that her skeleton was healthy, robust, and showed no signs of degeneration due to aging. They estimated her age to be around 40, but due to the remodeling of bone around her jaws, she had probably lost her teeth many years before her death. She also had jaw fractures that showed no signs of healing or remodeling, indicating that they were likely a post-mortem trauma. The team had found eight straight pins around her body, and these pins were in areas that seemed to indicate that they were meant to secure a shroud around her at the time of death. The pins were also important evidence to the original 1792 date of death was incorrect because these pins were made by a machine that was patented in England in 1824. Forensics is so cool. It's so cool. That little (laughs) tiny pin that the woman was buried with proved that she didn't die in 1792. Like, I just think that's so insanely cool. So Conlock and his team convened in 2007 to do another series of x-rays, and this time they used a more sensitive machine. This allowed for better quality images, which when examined by a forensic or physical uh, anthropologist determined that she was likely in her 30s when she died and further testing would need to be done in order to determine a possible identity and cause of death for her, which is not easy due to her fragile nature of the body. And as of 2016, some hair follicles and nail samples were being examined for potential DNA analysis, but as of right now... The soap lady's identity and cause of death remains a mystery, and we got all of this information from an uh, an Expedition magazine article by Anna N. Doty, and we'll link that in our show notes if you want to learn more about the soap lady. Absolutely crazy. I love her story. It's, I want to know who she is. I want to, I want to give her a name. Like, I want to be part of the team that gives her a name. Put me in, coach. I know. I feel like now, like in today's time with like how advanced DNA um, like analysis has come, I feel like they could be really close mm-hmm. in getting an ID for her. Right. They just, it's just so hard because of like how fragile everything is. They don't want to like disrupt yeah. anything. I mean, I think it's, it's still amazing that her body is so well preserved. It is really crazy. I've seen it. You've seen it too in person. It's it's insanely cool from a forensic perspective not insanely cool how her body was kind of just <laughs> discovered <laughs> like dr Leedy lied about being her grandchild but like, <laughs> forensics is so cool and like the fact that your body can turn to soap in certain conditions is amazing mm-hmm. also when i was looking up stuff for this case i kept looking up soap lady and the Oh my god, the serial killer lady who made people into soap kept coming up. And I was like, not oh, her. Yes, we are we talked about her Leonardo in a past yeah, episode. Leonardo Cianculli. Yeah. If I'm saying her I'm probably butching her her name right now. But yeah, I kept looking up soap lady and I was like, not that soap lady. Different soap lady. <laughs> so to end this episode, we tallied a total of two green flags and zero red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of Coroner does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. But hey, let us know if you think we missed anything. And also just watch this episode for the drama. It's crazy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy this podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram and DM us anything you want to talk about. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. 